Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is the Nerd Out Book Club. It's just like a regular book club, except sometimes the author stops by. This month's book is V.E. Schwab's The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue. Here is my attempt at summarizing it in a tidy paragraph. It's about a girl from the 1700s from France whose curiosities and ambitions are bigger than the small town she grows up in. And when she finds a way to break free of the expectation to marry and settle down, she takes it without thinking twice. But what she thinks is an amazing chance to live unhindered is actually a deal with the devil and a centuries-long curse. So we are going to have a super spoilery conversation about this book later this month. Today's chat with author V.E. Schwab, also known as Victoria Schwab, will be as spoiler free as possible. Victoria, welcome to Nerdette. Thank you so much. Also, what a beautiful summary. I'm used to like my two sentence elevator pitch of it. (laughs) And I feel like yours had so much more heart. Oh, thanks. I'll send it over to you if you want. I love it. (laughs) So... It was really funny preparing for this interview because I remember talking to you about Addie LaRue last time we had you on the show in 2016, (laughs) and we actually pulled the audio of that. So let's listen to it just right off the bat because it's kind of amazing. Okay. The thing following Conjuring of Light that I'm most excited about is a book I've actually been working on for about six years, on and off, kind of in between my other projects, and it's called... The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue. It's about a love story between a French girl and the devil over 300 years. What? Right? Uh, So it's about a French girl named Addie who sells her soul for the ability to live forever because she lives in one of those tiny Breton villages in the late 1600s where you can look up and your whole life has passed you by. And so she's, you know, in her early 20s and she's afraid of not ever experiencing anything. And so she makes this deal with the devil. And the devil doesn't want to make the deal because he only gets half of your soul on signing and half on delivery. (laughs) So if you want to live forever, he will never get the second half of the soul. And so in her haste, she essentially says, you can have the second half when I don't want it anymore. And he blesses her to live forever and subsequently curses her to be forgotten by everyone she meets. (gasps) Whoa. And so he becomes the only constant in her entire world. And so, yeah, it's a weird weird story that's kind of set in modern day Brooklyn when she's about 300 and she meets a boy a bookseller who remembers her name the next day oh my god Victoria I just love (laughs) your brain so much I'm so excited about this so Victoria here's the deal we're gonna have you back on in two and a half years and we're gonna talk about all the amazing things that have happened to you in that time frame we'll just keep checking in put it on your calendar (laughs) I so hope So it wasn't two and a half years. It was more like four years. But oh, my gosh. Oh, my goodness. That was unnerving. I mean, isn't that wild? 
I really couldn't keep my mouth shut about this book. <laughs> like seriously, I, I toured for years. Also, I do want to point out for anyone listening, several details of that it's, description yes, yes. over the years. And so that is not the most accurate description now, but like you could see, you could hear my excitement even then. And I was almost six years into this idea. I'm so glad that it struck you too, because I, I thought it was wild to listen to, because especially yeah. just like, yes, you're right. There are some major details that are different, but more or less, like you had it. And I think it's just testament to how hard you have worked on this book that is finally out in the world. I mean, 10 years, 10 yeah. years, basically. And like, I'd say that I had the bulk of it within the first three and yeah, I mean, you, I mean, you've written what, like 17 books by now? How many? So it depends if you count my graphic novels, which for some reason my father does not. And if you count my graphic novels, it's 20. And if you it's don't 20. count the graphic novels, it's 17. I don't know why I don't count them, but I count them. That's so funny because 17 is my go-to exaggeration number, but it was actually <laughs> accurate in this instance because you have it written was. so much. I mean, has anything you've written other than Addie taken this long for you to put together? I mean, thankfully, no. I mean, this is the thing, right? Is I was writing Addie or I was I was passively writing Addie, right? I was brainstorming Addie, not actually typing the story for 10 years. Mm -hmm. But I was writing other books along the way. So basically, Addie has been the the love affair, this like kind of uh, side hmm. piece for my entire career. Addie aside, the longest a book had taken me was four years, which was vicious. And mm -hmm. then Vengeful took another four. I think I just, I had this idea. You can hear it in 2016. You can probably hear it in my voice now that I deeply cared about. And I became paralyzed by the fear of not being able to write it. I right. mean, that's an ambitious premise that you have set up. Yeah. <laughs> a very ambitious. I mean, it's set over 300 years yeah. and a single year in New York City. And in some ways, it's a travelogue. In some ways, it's an art historical story. In some ways, it's a love affair. In some ways, it's a like a an opus on loneliness. And it, it was so many different things for me. And I checked in at so many different ages. And I just never felt, for one reason or another, prepared to write it. And then about eight years in, <laughs> I, I looked up, I experienced the same thing that Henry, the young man in the book experiences. I was 29 and I was like, oh my God, I'm going to die without writing this book because my fear of writing it wrong was going to trump my desire to have written it at all. And then I was like, well, I've got to write this. <laughs> finally sat down and wrote it. And it was just as miserable as I knew it would be this extrication uh -huh. of an idea yeah. that was so deeply seated in my psyche at that point that it felt traitorous almost to put it on mm. paper. Because it can never be exactly what you want it to be in your head. Is that part of it? Well, so I always, I have, a, I love a metaphor uh -huh. and the metaphor I have for the writing process is that an idea is like this beautiful glass orb of light mm -hmm. in your mm -hmm. mind. And the act of writing that idea down is like smashing the glass orb against a wall. And then the act of revision is picking up all of the shards and trying to rebuild the thing, understanding that it will never be the unbroken glass orb that it was. And I think I just had a fear of the distance between the two things. I knew it was going to change because you can never uh, realistically accomplish the thing that's in your mm -hmm. head. So it becomes a matter of the distance between the what's in your head and what you get out. But I will say, while it took 10 years and myriad revisions, um, the, of all of my books, this is the one that came closest to recapturing the glass orb. 
Wow, that's amazing. But it didn't after the first draft. Like the first huh, draft sure. was done and I looked at the thing and I was like, that is a lump of clay. That is not a platform. <laughs> what have I done? Um, and then with my editor, Miriam Weinberg's help, you know, we started looking at, okay, what did I do? Like, where did I depart? What is missing from this thing that I had held aloft in my heart for so mm-hmm. long? And then over the course of revisions, it was an effort to recapture that ethereal, defiant mm-hmm. joy and, and hope and a lot of those elements that you really can't accomplish. A first draft is an exercise in purposefully writing something wrong. Right, right. So this book is about a lot of things. We've kind of hinted at a couple of them already. I think two of the biggest takeaways for me were the importance of not even properly being seen, but properly feeling seen, I think. And the overwhelming intensity of pain that comes along with being alive. <laughs> Which is definitely a theme in most of my books. Yeah. That like, like- not to take it always back to the princess bride, right? But like <laughs> everything I do comes back to the princess bride, I feel like, because that was such a formative, I, for me, the film. And he says, life is pain. Like anyone who says differently is selling something. Mm-hmm. And I feel like most of my books, even though they're supernatural, it's about always what it means to be human. And yeah. I think about like what you, the, the deal that you do when you choose to be alive, when you choose to persist, is a deal in which you accept the pain as the cost for the beauty. Mm-hmm. And that for Addy, I had to write a character in Addy LaRue who was deeply different from myself. I'm not a pessimist, but I'm I'm deeply realistic. And I had to write a character who was optimistic to her core, to who could, I'm very much Henry in the book, mm-hmm. um, the young man who's struggling with this idea of mortality and life. And Addy can survive anything because of her belief that tomorrow might be better. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think the thing about Henry, too, is that I think we've all been in those positions where our emotions just completely overwhelm us and we just don't even know what to do. But but that seems like something with Henry that's especially acute, where he just kind of can't get out from under it. Well, and Henry definitely is like mental health plays a large role in most Mm -hmm. of my works, especially for Henry. I, you know, I wanted to give him the struggles that I deal with in terms of mental health and spiral thinking. Mm -hmm. And I gave him very specifically something that's deeply personal to me, which is the idea of storms. Mm -hmm. I always, I have learned over the last, you know, decade to look at um, anxiety and depression as storms Mm -hmm. inside my head, this idea that they can be deeply disruptive and, you know, do damage. But the thing about a storm is no matter how violent it is, it always passes by its nature. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the great lies that mental health and mental illness teach is this illusion that whatever you're feeling now, it will only ever get worse. That's the lie between body and Right. So then you might as well keep sitting at the bottom of the hole because why bother climbing? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So how does Victoria deal with big emotions with a lot of what she calls small joy, which is something you are for sure going to want to hear about. Plus, we're going to get to the ultimate question. Is there going to be a sequel? That's all right after the break. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Tanwen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. 
Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. So you mentioned the phrase defiant joy. And I think in a lot of ways, I don't know, maybe in most shitty instances of people's lives, (laughs) that can be a really amazing antidote to just like, especially mundane exhaustion, you know? Yeah. And I wonder what, especially right now, like what does defiant joy look like for you in your own life? Well, I think that's such a great question. Cause like it goes very in keeping with this year, um, the year of our nonsense. What do you mean Victoria? <laughs> I know, right. It's just a beautiful year. I don't know what's going wrong, but I think we put a lot of pressure on big joy. So I find my happiest moments tend to be moments of very small joy. Like I'm on lockdown in France. My family lives here and I, I, I moved down here for an indeterminate period of time this spring from Scotland where I live and have been here ever since. And it was certainly not how I intended to spend my year. Certainly not the year for Addie LaRue for me, which was, as we know, so many years in the making, Mm but I found that the brightest part of my day is that my parents have a vegetable garden or a fruit and vegetable garden. And for most of the summer, every morning before lunchtime, I would go up the hill to the garden with a bowl and I would pick the raspberries that we would put in our yogurt at lunchtime. Mm. And it was a small, small joy, but I have always found small joy in watching things grow. And I think there's something incredibly humbling. It's the same thing that I think about the night sky. And this comes up in the novel, the night sky is a motif Mm. that returns. And I think for some people, they look up at the night sky and they feel small in the worst way possible. It makes them feel very frightened, Mm -hmm. very inconsequential. But for other people, they look up at the night sky and that same thing inspires peace because they feel like their problems are small Mm -hmm. and inconsequential. And so that I'm of that camp, right? And so I'm constantly looking for things to very physically ground me. So I would say this has definitely been a year more than any other where we have to find the small joys. Most of us are not going to have big joys this year. We're going to have, you know, big stressors and some big tragedies and big difficulties, but that makes the small joys even more important. I think so often we think that small joy can't overcome big sorrow, but it's not actually quantitative in that way. Yeah, totally. So would you take Addie's deal? In a heartbeat. Really? Yeah. I can't. So, so I think this is difficult as somebody who deeply fears irrelevance. Like uh-huh. I'm a creator. I'm continuously afraid that the moment I stop talking or writing, everyone's going to forget my existence. And again, the question was hmm. posed in the book, who are we, if not the marks we leave behind. But at the same time, I possess Henry's fear that I just feel like every time I look down to tie my shoe, life races 10 years ahead of me. Hmm. And I'm so deeply unnerved by the brevity of it all that I think, well, it would be devastating in the short term. I, I'm an introvert and I feel like there is a difference between alone and lonely. And that's something that Addie herself has to explore. But I mean, I think I would, I, I, I think I would try to be a little more careful in my wording perhaps. <laughs> what about you? I don't think so. No. I mean, I've always and maybe it's just like a intellectual, uh, like the thing I tell myself, but I like I think the small joys are so beautiful because we they it, it's all finite, you know, like I think the 
the inherent nature of the fact that we don't have this life forever is what makes it so beautiful. Well, I like that. I like that. I think, um, I mean, I think no matter which decisions we make in life, whether they're mundane decisions or metaphysical decisions, um, there's always cost, right? There's always a balancing act that has to be played. We don't get anything without losing something. We don't gain without, without sacrifice. And so I think at the end of the day, like there is no such thing as a perfect deal. There is no such thing as, as a trade that doesn't require something to be given back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, we have a new Nerdette Facebook group where people can like chime in with questions. And so I asked folks if they had questions for you before getting to talk to you. And of course, we had several that were just asking if we would get to see more Addie or if, as Allie put it, this book is just a single glorious standalone. Oh, um, <laughs> it is. It is a standalone. And I think this is one of the most difficult things as somebody who also writes series. It's a question I've gotten often. But mm-hmm. as a creator... A standalone presents really unique opportunities, but also risks. If a reader reaches the end of a standalone novel and feels like they needed more to understand the story, then you failed. If a reader reaches the end of a standalone novel and desperately wishes that there was more yes. because they don't want it to end, then you have succeeded. Yep. Because then that reader can go back and restart it <laughs> from the beginning. I believe I have succeeded in that I don't think you need more for no. this book. So, yep. so here's my caveat. There will never be a sequel. I, this story is a standalone novel. Ask me in five to 10 years if there will be novels that take place within the same pantheon of gods. Mm. And the answer might be slightly different because Luke, my well, who we've called the devil for Lucifer. Yeah. shorthand, is not actually the devil. He's an old god. Yeah. He's one of a polytheistic pantheon yes. of gods. He's the god of promise and the god of potential and the god of night. And so I, of course, have wondered, like, well, what does the rest of that pantheon look like? Mm-hmm, so I mm-hmm. think that attracts me. But as far as the Addie, Luke, Henry of it all, no, it's a standalone. Yeah. I, to be honest, I'm glad to hear that just because I liked it a lot and I thought it was lovely. And I, you know, I am the kind of person who often is like, do just because it's good doesn't mean we need more. Like, I would much rather see what you get to come up with next. You exactly. know, like that to me is much more exciting than like more Addie and Henry. I owe many books in many. <laughs> I am not surprised to hear that. <laughs> so was it the second week that Addie came out that it hit the bestseller list, the New York Times? No, it bestseller? hit the first and it's been on there ever since. Like Victoria. <laughs> I know, I know. It's crazy to me. It's, uh, I mean, we'll find out if it stays on it for a fourth week, but it, it debuted at number four on the New York Times list and number two on the indie list. And then it dropped down to number five, which we don't even call it a drop. We call it a shimmy and whatever back up to number four. (laughs) So do you think of this as your first like mainstream ish novel? Is that a fair, like, it seems to me like it's the least like capital G genre yeah. book you've written. I guess it's my closest I'm ever going to get to quote unquote literary fiction, which we can say is the same as like general fiction or non-genre or whatever. I mean, it's still a fantasy in that it has a supernatural element to it. But if all of my work are branches on a tree, this branch is very far away from say Shades of Magic or Vicious. So yeah, are you going to are you going to keep jumping into these literary branches or are you like, have you thought of? No. I don't have any others right now. I mean, everything else that I write and like what I really love, like I was terrified to write Addie because it was an outlier. Yeah. And now I'm terrified for people to find my work through Addie, expecting them all to be in that quiet literary vein and discover like Vicious, which is a series about super villains. <laughs> like, 
So I'm really grateful to have had this opportunity, but it has scared me thoroughly. That's funny because I was trying to figure out the tactful way of being like, Victoria, are you terrified? Yes. (laughs) I'm horrified. I mean, I'm terrified anytime. But at the same time, I listened to an interview with Neil Gaiman recently, Mm. one of my mentors and heroes. And And it was really satisfying to hear him say something similar, which is that he specifically tries to stretch in different directions with every book so that they're not easily compared. Hmm. And I think that's something that while I have definitely done that within a genre space primarily, I still try to make each one of my novels um, difficult to just make an apples to apples comparison on. And so I think this is the latest endeavor to reject the comparison. Well, and I don't know, I love the idea of creating enough loyalty, which obviously you have where like your readers are just along for the ride, you know, and like maybe I'm not a monster person, but like I loved those books, you know, and like, sure, maybe like lesbian vampire show for Netflix (laughs) doesn't immediately blow my mind. But like the fact that I know you're doing it means that I'm going to watch it, you know? I try to just have a hand in every little cookie pot, just make my little weird, uh, monstrous, death-obsessed, you know, (laughs) allegories in each corner of the industry. It's beautiful, and I love it, and I want you to just do it. I mean, I was going to say forever, but that's especially apt for this (laughs) book. As long as I have ideas. (laughs) Victoria Schwab, thank you so much. This was so much fun. Thank you. V.E. Schwab, such a delight. This month's book is her latest. It is called The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue. I really hope you read it along with us. It's a pretty lovely story, especially for the right now times. If you do read it, we would love to hear what you think. You can send us your thoughts, you know, like what this book is really about to you or would you make a deal to live forever? Just record yourself on your phone and then email the file to nerdatpodcast at gmail.com. Do it before we record on November 20th. Then you can tune in on Tuesday, November 24th to hear our very spoilerful panel discussion. The show is produced by me and Justin Bull. Our intern is Isabel Carter and our executive producer is Brendan Banizak. We will see you for more book club in two weeks. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to the Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.